Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Um, Scripture reading for today is from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves um, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance to the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function. So in Christ, we who are, who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Well, kids, it is fun to have you in worship today. This is what we typically do when you're back there in Vine Kids. And I just want to take this opportunity just to tell you that God also loves to hear your praise, that God listens to every single prayer that you share, and that God knows you by name, and it is so fun to worship with you this morning. We've been in a series called Habits, where we've been looking at the power of habits in our life, also the power that spiritual practices and habits have in forming us. Um, And in many ways, uh, what we've been thinking about is this idea about how we can practice the habits that we see in Jesus' life. So we looked at habits like meditating on Scripture, habits around prayer, around the idea and the practice of Sabbath. And today we're going to talk about the habit of having significant friendships. Significant friendships. So I'm curious. This is kind of an all-play question. What makes for a good friend? Let me see a couple hands here. What makes for a good friend? Kids, you can answer too. Yes, sir. Reliable. Trustworthy. Good. Well, from a child, what makes a good friend to you? Anybody? Good. Yeah, Doris. A good listener is a good friend. Absolutely. Okay, now kind of turn the question a little bit. What is the gift of a good friend? What does having a good friend actually give you and provide for you in life? Or is our costume today a wax museum? Is that what we are today? Uh-huh. Like you're not experiencing life alone, that you're actually sharing it with each other. Counsel, like the idea of like, Getting feedback, searching wisdom, discerning what's good. Comfort. Joy. Yeah, absolutely. Encouragement. We all need a little wind in the sails, right? So the, for us, as we think about the idea of friendship, oftentimes, like, the pictures that I have when I think about friendship, the pictures that come to my mind are mostly children. Like, when I think about, like, good friends, I often... Think about one of my earliest friends, Cliff Green. Cliff and I in Dallas, Texas would 
go to church together on Sunday morning, sneak out before Sunday school, go to the 7-Eleven, buy Slurpees, and steal baseball cards. And we did that on a Sunday, y'all. I also think about my kids and playing with their best friends, you know, climbing trees, trading Pokemon cards, uh, just running around the neighborhood acting like they're battling each other. Uh, the sad thing is what I've experienced is as we grow older, many of us lose the value of having significant friends. I actually think, especially for men, a lot of us have this desperate longing for friendship. But for some reason, our society, we just have a tendency to devalue them. Like, when was the last time you met an adult and said, oh, have you met my best friend? <laughs> like, that's something that we have a tendency just to have as kids. But we need best friends. It's like if you were to meet someone, is your, this is my best friend, Darren. Oh, is, do you guys have the same lunchbox? Do you have matching lunchboxes? Does Darren have, like, a bed that looks like a race car or something? I, that's, my best friend, Darren, had a race car bed. It was the best thing ever. Yeah, so like, what if we actually, regardless of our age, choose to value significant friendship? I'm afraid that as we grow older, what takes place of our, our value of friendship is our careers. What else takes space is like the, just us just unplugging and entertainment and not actually being face-to-face -face with people without a screen. Or we just have a tendency just to be running at such a pace we can't have margin for friendship. It's just so sad that as we grow older, we lose the value of having friends. Even families, even the idea of family can be so absorbing that we don't have space to actually have friendships outside of our family unit. I just wanna say that friendship is not meant just for children. Friendships, in our, in our perspective as a church, friendships are soaked in spiritual significance. Friendships are the sacred places in our life that sometimes God does God's best work. And so even though our culture might devalue friendship, we believe that God still has great purposes for friendships. And as a church, the vine believes that this is a central part of us following Jesus. If you look through scripture, we see the value of community and friendship over and over and over again. For instance, what was the very first wrong thing that God saw in creation? Well, from Genesis, we think, well, maybe it was when they ate of the fruit and sin entered the world, but no. The first wrong thing was when God saw Adam and said, it's not good for someone to be alone. It's not good for someone to be isolated, not to have community. Why? In part because we were created in the image of God and one of the unique beliefs that we have about God is that God is not some stand-alone being, but God is actually a community. The Trinity is this idea that God is community. And so it wasn't like God created humanity out of loneliness. It was we actually were created in the image of, of a community of perfect harmony, harmony, delight, and purpose. That is who we are. And so God can look at a person and go, it is not good for someone to be alone. In Scripture, we find that there is over a hundred times, a hundred times that there are these one another commandments. You know, like forgive one another, encourage one another, challenge each other, even rebuke one another. Like there's a hundred times in the Scripture we find these one another commandments. And that teaches us that the Bible and God's instruction for us is not just how 
to live in harmony with God, but how to have significant good connection with each other. Like this life with God has to spill out into a unique community a hundred times. Jesus spent his time not just going into individuals' lives and saying, will you ask me into your heart? Will you ask me into your heart? But Jesus also did, outside of having these unique, powerful interactions with individuals, Jesus created communities. Even in the disciples, Jesus brought together people who would never spend time together and forged a community, a unique community that, like, that challenged the way in which the world existed. It imagined a different way of being friends. And even one day, Jesus looked at these disciples, these followers, these apprentices of Jesus and said, you've seen how I've taught. You've seen how I've healed. You've seen how, how I've been a, a person that's embodied mercy. Now I'm gonna send you out. You guys remember this story. I'm gonna send you out. I'm gonna send you out without any money, any change of clothes, without a plan, any type A people getting stressed out about that idea. But I'm gonna send you out with two things. I'm gonna promise I'm gonna be with you and I'm gonna give you a partner. And he sent him out in twos to go into the world to see that God's goodness and mercy was embodied. God never designed you to be sent out alone. And as the early church began to, to realize and to wrestle with what does it mean like to be a community of people after Jesus came and died and rose again, one of the primary analogies that Jesus gave the church, what the church really spoke of, is that, that they were the body of Christ. That our identity is not individualistic, as it often is in, in our time and day. But what, what, what our identity is, that we together are the body of Christ. Jesus' master plan to change the world was to make sure that we together embodied his life, his love, his mercy, his grace, as we put Jesus in the center of who we are. For instance, Paul wrote to a church in Rome, in Romans 12, he said this, for just as each of us have one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. This is one of the most drastic teachings of the early church, and it might just seem so wrapped in like religion, it doesn't mean much, but what Paul was saying is here is that you no longer are your own story. You actually belong to each other like many members of one body. Like, as I look at this community, I'm just thinking about how each of us are different members of one body. If you want to know how to get in touch with the different members of your body, I have a recommendation, is to age. I am now realizing parts of my body that I'd never had before. I have a lower back. I have a, and it's strong. I've gotten to know my lower back. I have a hip. I started using readers. And I know once you start doing that, when you start using these little cheater glasses, there's no going back. Like, I am getting 
used to the different members of my body. It happened as soon as I turned 40. Now, Paul's main point here is that, that we are distinct in our relationship with God. We have different purposes and giftings, but you are never meant to go alone. You are grafted, as you are grafted into the life and the love of Jesus, you're grafted into a body. And just like a member of my body cannot survive on its own, so it is with us, that we belong to each other. So last week, I had a picture of this. Team Charbonneau, we got away to Colorado. We had a great time. We hot-tubbed. We got altitude sickness. It was the best. We saw snow. Um, But of course, one of the highlights is your and the beauty of Colorado. While there, I noticed there's two main kind of trees that I saw throughout that that part of Colorado. There were evergreen trees and there were aspen trees. The evergreen trees were like, they're so prominent. They were towering, so tall. One time we were on a hike and Jack, my son, asked if he could just take that one down and put it in his room for Christmas. I was like, I don't know if that would be considered a carry-on, so we're going to leave it here, buddy. But then, of course, there are aspen trees. The aspen trees have like this energy to them when they see the wind blow through and the leaves like have this, this flickering look. I don't know if you all have seen that before. But it was interesting looking at those two different kinds of trees. Um, it looks as if the evergreens just tower over the aspen trees. But did you know, you guys are going home with a fun fact, okay? Did you know that the aspen tree is the largest organism in the world? The largest organism in the world is the aspen tree. And why is it? Even though it looks like each of these are individual like organisms, there's actually a root system that connects them all together. In fact, that as they are interconnected under the surface with the same root system, that they actually create this web of being one organism. There's a forest of aspen trees in Utah that spans, that's 47,000 trees. 47,000 trees, it covering 106 acres. So if the UT campus is 40 acres, I don't know if that's actual true, but if it's 40 acres, imagine over twice the size of UT campus, there is one tree many members. And furthermore, that that organism, that tree system, is 80,000 years old. That's how old that system is. How can something like that survive and spread out? Well, when that organism is healthy, it continues to spread out, shooting more and more trees out underneath through the web of roots out into the world. And when one tree suffers, when one tree is going through something, The root system sends all the nutrients, all the water to that one source where that's struggling. And of course, when I'm on vacation, I'm not supposed to be a pastor, and I'm reading about this, I go, great sermon illustration. You know, like there's no no taking off because like for me, I'm like, that is such a picture of what God intends the church to be. Though it looks like we are these independent unique, standalone bodies in this world, the way in which God intended it is that underneath the surface, there's this interconnection between all of us where we belong to each other, where we lift each other up, 
where we celebrate what's going on with each other, when we're healthy, where new life is taking place and spreading out here in Austin and into your workplace and into our homes and to our friendships. When we're healthy, we're just spreading out more and more, hoping that by us being a church, a healthy church, we're inviting people to experience the kingdom of God in our midst. And when we're suffering, we don't look at someone, wish them well, send them a little prayer emoji, but we actually like stand in the gap with each other. We experience the pain alongside of someone. We rush all the nutrients of grub, hub, and favor to their doorstep. You know, like this is what we do as a church when we, it's our turn. You know, I've, I've interacted with some people, especially in the context of Austin, where there's this growing cynicism of church. And I've interacted with some people and said, you know, being a part of this community of a bunch of people, you don't know if you agree with everything. You don't know if people are awkward or needy. I just, it seems like it's a little bit risky. I think I'd rather just go it alone. And the reality is, if you do go it alone, you will experience less suffering. Absolutely, you'll experience less suffering than being in a community and seeing marriages fall apart, seeing diagnoses, seeing children that are hurting, seeing, experiencing job loss and pain and mental health and emotional health. It's like if you go alone, you're not going to experience all of that. But when it's your turn to go through it, you won't be alone. And the body of Christ can lift you up, can sustain you. And like our family's life, I, I can testify that as church, we just take turns doing that. One day, our number's up, the next day it might be you. But the joy is that in the midst of doing that, we are the body of Christ. And if there's anything we can see the body of Christ being, it's compassionate, it's present, it's the solidarity with all of the human experience so that we are never alone. And for better or for worse, the way in which God's presence is most known in this world is through us. It's through the body of Christ. There is no other body of Christ today rather than us. And we live in a day and age that we praise evergreens. We like praise and value those who have made it on their own, those who have been bootstrapped on their own. They're independent. They're not in need. They're not vulnerable. They like don't, don't require the help of other people. And that's good on this economy of this world, but it is not the way of Jesus. The way of Jesus is the Aspens. You know, um, even if you look at the way that science is, there, I read a Harvard review this past week and uh, it said that people, this is, I found this incredibly interesting. People that lived without significant friendships, their risks of premature death increased by 50%. By 50%, their risk of premature death, if they go it alone, if they don't have significant friendship. That is the effect of the mortality risk that's comparable to smoking 15 cigarettes a day and greater than obesity or physical inactivity. So kids, as long as you join a small group, you can do whatever you want to. It's science, and I'm a pastor. You got it on both sides. But like, to be honest, like my fear, uh, my fear is in this season of life is that 
uh, we have grown less connected because of the, of the need of distancing and the need of kind of taking precautions that we should have taken. Um, you know, we have grown less con- and less connected. And I think for many of us, we're feeling like we belong to each other less and less. And I just, just want to just, just share just a plead as a pastor for you that do not let your faith life with Jesus be private and disconnected. You were meant to walk with Christ and walk with significant friends. As Martin Luther King Jr., he said, he talked about how we are connected with one another. He said this, we are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. I can never be what I ought to be until you are who, uh, what you are, you are ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. We are a part of an interrelated structure of this inescapable network of mutuality where we belong to each other. We need each other. I know that I would be half the person I am today if I did not have a handful of significant friends who have walked with me through all of life. I I needed that inescapable network of mutuality to grow me, to lift me up so that I become who I ought to be as others become who they ought to be as well. And so for us, as a church, we've kind of put a habit in the middle of our life together, one that we're gonna invite you to. And that is, if you, I don't know if we have that graphic, Katie. I'm sorry if I, oh, look at that. Yeah, that panic. I'm so sorry. But I, I want us to look at that graphic of those eight different habits real quick. So these are the eight habits we're hoping to embody as a church, four daily habits, four weekly habits. And one of the habits that we have that's around loving neighbor and embracing something is embracing one hour of significant friendship a week to set aside in our week one hour where you're face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball with someone so that you can begin to enact some of those hundred one-another instructions to challenge each other when when it's needed, to lift each other up, to pray for each other, to carry each other's burdens. For us, we wanna practice this as we follow Jesus And as we seek to love our neighbor, we are going to challenge each other to having one hour a week where we set aside for significant friendship. Because we believe that as we follow Jesus, we are not led into isolation, but we're grafted into this beautiful and, yes, complicated family of of followers of Jesus so that we can find the source of life in following Christ together. One of the final moments that Jesus had with his disciples, his followers, Jesus changed the script. It seems as if Jesus wanted to change the script. He said this, and this is in John 15. He said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for their friends. I no longer call you servants. By the way, that's what we typically think of our relationship with God, right? We're here to serve, we're God's up there, we're kind of cogs in a wheel, we're here to serve and make things happen. But Jesus said, no, 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 I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's happiness. Instead, I have called you friends. 
In this final conversation that Jesus had with his disciples, Jesus could have talked about so many different things, but in this conversation, Jesus sought to re-enchant the purpose and the power of friendship. Yes, of friendship with Jesus, but then Jesus says, and all I wanna leave you with is one commandment, one, one another. And what is that? To love one another. Everything is fulfilled in that. And furthermore, there's no greater love than to lay down your life with your friends. And just in case that didn't stick with the disciples, Jesus drove home that conversation by taking bread and taking wine and saying that this is something I'm gonna show you, but this is something that you also have to take in to your own souls. This is something you're gonna have to consume and follow with as well. Jesus got the bread and broke it and talked about how his body was going to be broken. Jesus took the cup and he poured it and said, this, is, this wine is like this memory that there's a new relationship I want. It's from the shedding of my blood for the forgiveness of sins. This is the sacrificial love I have for you. Me laying down my life is not just a talking point. It's tangible. I'm gonna love you to the end. So we thought it'd be meaningful today, especially with our, uh, our young ones here with us. We're gonna take communion with each other. Uh, we're gonna do so not only in receiving the love and the sacrificial mercy that Jesus gave us, but also we want this communion table to be an opportunity for us to recommit ourselves in friendship, in significant friendship. So um, I'm gonna give some instructions, but before I do that, I'm gonna say a prayer over us. Lord Jesus, we thank you, God, for demonstrating the vastness of your love. And I pray, God, as we come here to this table, as we rarely do nowadays, that we would experience it as the sacred thing that you have set apart for us that we would experience that we do have a friend in Jesus, one who's given us mercy and grace. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.